0: Hello, my friends. Today, we are talking to Rob Thomas, the SVP of software at IBM. And we discuss three magical skills that everyone should focus on, how to manage fear when leading teams, and why you will fail as a leader if you believe you have to do everything yourself. All of this right here, right now, on the Modern CTO Podcast. Here we go. This is the Modern CTO Podcast. Hello, hello. Hello, Joel. It's Rob. I'm so excited to talk to you today, man. Great to meet you. Yeah, I appreciate this. This is great. I've been like cyber stalking you, reading all of your blog content.
1: Good deal. Well, hopefully we have a lot of things to talk about. Yeah. When did you start writing? Probably a decade ago. And it's one of these things where I probably wrote for three years and I don't think anybody. Nobody ever read anything I wrote, which was fine uh, but you but you learn just by doing like in anything else, and so after a while, some people started to read and it probably got a little better, but it can still always get better was like was there like an initial
0: inspiration or how did you get like first interested in it?
1: One of the thoughts I had was I read a lot a ton, and Everything I was reading, I was writing down and keeping notes for myself. And at some point I realized this could actually be valuable to somebody else and could save them a lot of time if I could distill this into something that is, you know, more condensed, maybe put in a different form. So it was really just about could I share the things that I'm learning and do that in a more scalable way. Selfishly, it also helps me remember (laughs) what I was learning, because if you take a bunch of notes on something, then you have to convert it and and put your own spin on it. It actually shows that you know the material. So the old adage of, you know, if you want to be an expert in something, learn to teach it, because if you can teach it, then you probably really know it.
0: Yeah, I read your article, like the first one, my first exposure to Rob Thomas content was your general I think it was like general management instruction guide and so my my team had sent that over or I saw it and I was going through it and I was just blown away right because I've never I've read so many books and you know I've had so much experience building businesses and things of that nature but for you to articulate it in such a clear concise manner as an instruction I just like, I started reading it and I was like, yes, yes, yes. Like, this is amazing. And then I saw some stuff that I didn't understand. And I'm like, oh, that shows how little experience I have. That's going to probably mean more to me in the future. <laughs> and so it was a really, it was really great to to get to read that. And as I'm reading it, like all the stories of those, these lessons I've learned were like coming up inside. And so I was like, this guy's brilliant. I'm so excited to talk to him.
1: I don't think brilliant, but I appreciate uh, you saying that the reason I wrote that was we've got a lot of people in an IBM that aspire to run big businesses. And to me, there's what you read in academic books where I think it's really hard to apply that stuff. And then a lot of that was literally notes that I've taken over the last 20 years, mostly informed by bad decisions or mistakes that I made. And I was hoping for it to be something super practical where anybody could pick that up and maybe apply one or two things to what they're doing. And you know, the groups I shared it with in IBM seemed to, seemed to enjoy it and, kind of, and found it that way. So I hope it accomplished that. that. That was really the objective.
0: Yeah, after I read it, I was like, this guy needs to write a book. And then I Googled to see if you had written, it. and you've written a couple of books and you actually have one that just came
1: out called The AI Ladder the I never planned to write a book. One blog post I wrote, I think it was seven years ago. And out of the blue, I got contacted by Wiley, the publisher in the UK. And, and the woman said, Hey, I think this blog post would make a great book. Have you ever thought about writing a book? And I said, definitely not. But I thought about it overnight. and I called her back. I was like, Sure, I'll give it a shot that one was the book ended up being called big data revolution and the blog post i'd written was just how data is being used in different industries which i think is fairly obvious now maybe it was less obvious seven or eight years ago and it's really hard to write a book that's what i learned what's funny about that one was i started interviewing a bunch of people trying to build content for the book i talked to a guy I forget, I think I just contacted him randomly and he was in Rwanda, an, an Oxford professor in Rwanda who'd done a lot of homework in the areas of data. And he's like, hey, this book sounds interesting. Can I can I, can I write it with you? And at that point, I was like so deep and trying to figure out how I was going to do this. I, w- I would take anything. So I was like, sure. So he became, Patrick McSherry is his name. He became the co-author on the first book. Second book was I realized that every company is becoming a a tech company. So I called it the end of tech companies, meaning we're no longer gonna call companies tech companies because every company is gonna become one. That one I did by myself. And then the most recent one, the AI ladder is really just about how do companies adopt AI? It's kind of get rid of all the hype and all the noise about AI. Ultimately AI is about your data. Do you understand your data? Can you make sense of your data? That was really the focus of that one so i became an accidental author of books
0: that's exciting my friend i learned so much from writing my first book because half the people will
1: love you and half of them will yell at you <laughs> but uh, yeah i mean i i love seeing some of the negative reactions you get like comments on amazon and my wife gets annoyed because she's like, why does this person hate you? I was like, I don't know, but there's <laughs> nothing we can do about it.
0: <laughs> that was in your in your management guide. I think you said something along the lines of like, you can't please everyone, so
1: don't try. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, that
0: that's a that's one that I have had to learn to deal with, like trying not to read the comments. And I've actually completely shut down notifications in my personal life. So I've just my phone is perpetually in do not disturb mode, you know, just because like the videos and everything and the podcast that gets posted. And so I just kind of shut it all off. And I am 100 percent. And that's a measurable number. I'm 100 percent happier. (laughs) (laughs) Sounds like a good move. So you've been at IBM for
1: over 20 years, right? Yes. Was that your first job? It was. I I was an undergrad and I went straight to graduate school. And then coming out of graduate school, went uh, straight to IBM. And it's been tremendous. I started with IBM in consulting. It's really funny going into consulting when you come out of school. Because consulting, fundamentally, you're... Trying to convince somebody to pay you for advice. And I just came out of school. Like I literally know nothing. So trying to think about how are you going to add value enough that somebody's willing to pay you when it's obvious that you're just out of school. I think I looked like I was 12 when I joined IBM. So, you know, it forces you to learn a lot. I remember one, one of the earliest stories, this was like three weeks in IBM, all the new hires were sitting in a room and one of the, we call them principals, now we call them partners, walks into the room and says, hey, I just signed a deal. I need somebody that knows Visio that can work on this project and looks around the room and everybody just like looks at their keyboard. Nobody knows it. And so I sat there in the uncomfortable silence and then I, I raised my hand. I was like, I know it, no problem. And so she's like, okay, great. So we're going to start next week. So she leaves the room. I was like, I got to figure out what visio is i've never even heard of it and so i literally left the office that day went to a bookstore bought three books on visio now luckily some of your listeners may not know what visio is but it's basically a workflow tool so i spent the weekend the next next few days and the weekend learning how to do it and you know then i was employed for the next couple months And so to me, there was just, I don't even know why I did that, but I was like, I have nothing else to do. Why would I not say I can and try to figure it out? Luckily, I could. But I think that's the nature of really anything. Certainly when you're early in your career is, I encourage people, you've you've really got to be willing to try anything. Like, don't define yourself as this is what I am, or this is what I know. Just try anything. And You can learn pretty fast if you're willing to go buy the books or or whatever it takes to do that and now there's even more i mean this was before youtube right you can learn anything on youtube these days so that was kind of one of the early experiences that i guess just taught me that careers are really all about learning and if you can learn faster than others then you can probably do do really well
0: Are you connected with like the next generation of people coming out of colleges? Do you go speak to them? Like when they're joining IBM early today?
1: I am so different levels, like out of the blue, I had somebody contact me. I think it was sacred heart, um, on long Island and said, Hey, I think they'd seen something I wrote and said, will you come talk to the class? So I went and did that for an evening, which is actually really fun because you realize how curious and just generally interested students are of trying to figure out what to do with their lives. I'm pretty heavily involved at the University of Florida, which is where I went to graduate school. I've spoken to some of the classes there. And then as we bring new hires into IBM, I love to go talk to to that. We've got some new hire classes that I speak to. So all different forms of that actually are you picking up on any
0: trends of like the incoming generation? Because I mean, you've been doing this for, you know, like two decades, have you seen changes happen? And what are you learning there?
1: Without a doubt, the biggest, and I think it's a little bit because of what we've done around the areas of AI. The number one topic that comes up in those forums now is data science. And, and I do encourage them, look, it's really hard to come out at, school today. First of all, I can't imagine trying to get into college today. I certainly couldn't get into college today anywhere that I went. I can't imagine trying to get a job. But what I tell them is, if you want a bulletproof resume that guarantees you a job, do something in computer science or data science. It will be impossible not to get a job. And so I do try to encourage people to think in that direction, because these are fields that will run for the next 50 years, probably. So that topic often comes up. I do see people that are just really curious about how to chart a career path. And I try to encourage them not to get too ahead of themselves. It's good to have ambitious goals and the bigger your goals, the better. But to kind of go back to the Visio story, it's about just get somewhere where you like the people, where you're doing work that's interesting, and then be willing to raise your hand and volunteer and do whatever's necessary. And if you do that, things are probably gonna take care of themselves. But Rob, that takes a long time and it's a lot of hard work. <laughs> <laughs> I know we are an instant gratification society now, but I think there's a lot of value in the hard work, right? The The years where things don't go quite as you were hoping the promotion you don't get, the job you didn't get, you know, all of that actually makes you way stronger. So, you know, I encourage people to even stick with it too because sometimes people react if something doesn't go right, oh, now I gotta go do something else. Like, hey, there's probably a lot of value to sticking with something.
0: Oh yeah, we have a saying around the office here. It's called,
1: don't quit in the dip. Like when it dips down, don't quit. Yeah, it's well said. And I think it's the easy, look, it's human nature to quit. That's the easy way out. But you can't. You got to keep going because when you do,
0: there's growth on the other side of that pain. And that's the thing that like my wife said the other day for um Christmas, I think her mom got us like a scratch off lottery thing in our stocking. And I'm like, OK, but uh, I'm very grateful for the gift. But um she uh, she asked me, she's like, oh, why don't you do the, play the lottery? And I'm like, I don't want it to go down that way. Like, I don't want it to happen that way for me. Like, I want to like i'm already seeing the fruits of like working very hard for a long period of time and i want that to to be the way it happens for me
1: i played a lot of sports growing up and so i have a a little bit of a bias when i'm talking to people i love people that have competed in sports or competed in something else but the reason i say sports is you lose way more than you win in sports <laughs> You with you miss way more shots, you miss way more pitches. So you basically learn how to lose anybody that plays sports, especially me, learns how to lose a lot, but then the value is how you, how do you bounce back? So I think it tells you a lot about people if they can, like you say, manage through that dip and kind of push through and find, find the other side.
0: What are, what are you spending like the majority of your time uh, on today? IBM
1: is a, at an amazing point where, to give it in big chapters, really from early 1990 until last year, we had really become a services company, a technology services company. And we're now taking IBM back to its roots, being more of a core technology software company. We still have services, it's important, but that takes a lot of work to to get everybody on board with this direction. And so it's a lot of fun. So I I have most of the software business at this stage and it's about getting everybody in IBM excited about making IBM the world's greatest technology company. And um, so it's a mix of hiring people, building products, reviewing products. I spend a lot of time with clients, all on online at this point uh, but it's a lot of fun
0: yeah i saw that you guys have done some acquisitions recently
1: yeah we just closed an acquisition with a company called instana this a uh, team that we we'd seen some of their work we did all of the due diligence and acquisition work via zoom it's amazing that we can we can do that these days we're really excited to have them they you know every every company has hundreds of different software applications and Stana helps make it really easy to manage those applications and, and how they make a business digitally enabled. So we've done that one. We've done a few in services areas. So always a lot of things to do.
0: Can you, you've said this a couple of times, but can you help me understand you were talking about services versus another line of business? I think it was like the software. Can you help me understand what the differences
1: are? So, I describe it this way we have a consulting business which is think of that as management consulting we help companies implement software or transform their business and and that's a key part of what we do that's that was built out of the consulting business that i started with originally and then when we acquired price coopers that's that business we announced the the spin-off of our managed infrastructure business, which is outsourcing. So kind of a different kind of services, which is managing servers. So that's being spun out of IBM. And then we have a software business and we have a hardware business because clients still love using mainframes, which is great. We've got software that runs on those. So it's just think of it as different lines of business in IBM. When it comes to software, we really do... Four major things, we do a lot in automation. So helping companies automate business processes, automate their IT, we do security. So helping companies protect themselves from, from the bad guys, and manage security. We do a lot in data and AI. And then what I'd call modernization, helping customers that want to move to the cloud. Those are really the four big areas under software for us.
0: Interesting. I didn't. The automation stuff is transforming my business. I mean, I have a small business, but the amount of usefulness from these automation tools that exist out there, from and there's a whole spectrum of them, like from Zapiers, which is like pushing data between stuff, to things like ClickUp, it's like helping us do like tasks and like dependent tasks for customer deliverables. We've just really embraced, we got. We got from like the spreadsheet doing everything manually and then we grew you know as a business enough to where we're like we need better solutions and that's when we start looking but i was so happy about how mature the market was compared to the time when i needed this last which was about 10 years ago when i had a company that was growing and the solutions were not that mature it was almost just you had to build everything yourself if you wanted it to work right and now there's just so much uh advancement
1: it has a big impact for a business like yours. That's why I'm always a little shocked. Whenever, when most people hear automation, it immediately sets off a little bit of a fear factor. Oh, is that going to take jobs? Is that going to replace me? And I, I, I try to redirect that and say, you know, AI is not going to replace managers, but the managers that use AI are going to replace the ones that don't. Cause think about how much more effective your business is now, you're using those kind of capabilities and if your competitor wasn't they'd be running around doing all this stuff manually it wouldn't be very efficient and so anything in automation whether it's how you manage your assets or how you manage your supply chain or customer support or billing it actually gives it gives the users superpowers it makes them way better at their job which is why i encourage people don't don't react to the the media hype of This is gonna destroy jobs. It's actually gonna make people a lot more productive, which is positive.
0: So what type of IBM automation software is there? Like, is it self-serve?
1: The hottest product, certainly since COVID hit, is something called Watson Assistant, which is, it's a virtual agent. All your customer service can be done using software. And it's self-service. Anybody can go on the web and try it. CVS is actually using it right now for um, COVID vaccine distribution questions. Royal bank of Scotland uses it for all of their customer service. And now half of the time somebody calls Royal bank of Scotland, they're just interacting with AI agent. And that means that all of their actual agents can spend way more time on the hard problems. So you can see why COVID kind of accelerated that because when people woke up one day and realized suddenly everything's virtual, how are we going to do this? Having a virtual agent, you know, at the, on the you know, the metaphorical chair next to you that can answer all the questions or most of the questions, it can have a huge impact. And you used to be on the Watson team, right? Yeah. The um, So it's interesting. Watson originally was Jeopardy. That's how most people recognize. That's kind of when it came on the scene. Then we spent the better part of seven or eight years doing a lot of experimentation. And a lot of that was back to the services discussion. It was kind of custom services work because when companies saw Jeopardy, everybody was like, I want my own AI. The thing that's changed in the last three years is we've really built this out as a product business. Things like Watson Assistant have really gone mainstream, self-service, like you said, We've got things like Watson Discovery, which is basically just understanding all of your documents, all of your text, all of of your data. Um, So we've got some really great products now. That's interesting,
0: the um, understanding your documents that you mentioned that because last night I happened to watch cosmos possible worlds with neil degrasse tyson and they had an episode at the end i didn't see any of the other episodes i just went right to the end one to see if because it was about the future and i'm a big fan of the future (laughs) um and in there he like revisits the you know world's fair of like 1949 or something some date but they a segment in that episode is this kid walks up to um them discussing the, an ibm computer and it's like this giant machine and they, he writes the the kid writes a date on an index card or a punch card type thing and hands it to the person they put it in the machine and it reads out on a display like an old school I forget what they're called, but like the LED type displays. And it reads out like the headline of the most important news article for that day. So they could write. So it was it was reading handwritten characters. And this is like forever ago. <laughs> but it was it was IBM. Have you seen that or
1: no? I have not. You intrigued me. I wanted to see that. I just read the book called The Maverick and His Machine, which was which is a book about Thomas Thomas J Watson, so it kind of goes through a lot of that, which is actually an incredible book. But now I got something to watch, so I appreciate the tip.
0: Yeah, I'd never seen handwriting recognition on such a legacy machine.
1: <laughs> <laughs>
0: <laughs> okay, here's a topic I'm I'm interested in. I'm I'm asking around about uh, different different guests and stuff. So it's about outsourcing, right? About outsourcing. So I was talking with. Ryan. Uh, he's the CEO of this company called X Team. And the most interesting thing about my conversation with him was definitely the, the company culture, but their business model is they do the you know high performance on-demand teams, right? So like outsourcing for companies. But for me, my experience, I built apps for like over a decade and I just went usually directly to consumers or investors came to me or something of that nature. I didn't understand that there's this whole sub market, or it's 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 a large market of these app development companies or technology engineering companies that are building tools and things like that for other businesses. And so I was fascinated from a business perspective about how just having a visualization for how the economy is set up, because I'm just nerdy like that. But then came up the question of, you know. When when do the companies decide to use the outsourcing agencies and how do they decide to do that versus hiring more internal? It looks like a lot of them have massive internal engineering teams, but also use a bunch of outsourced people
1: as well. How How do you decide that? You know, it's very situational. Anything that is core to our business, at the heart of major product lines, chances are we'll probably build that ourselves because it entails core know-how and IP. And it's just a lot faster and more efficient to do it ourselves. Sometimes if we're going into a new area, so let's say it's an area we've not gone into before a good way to trial that is go build out the, you know, an MVP or a first rev using a business partner like you described and if it works, then later you could bring it in house, or you could continue to scale with that partner. But it's kind of a managed risk way to go do something new, because then you don't have to distract your existing team. So that's like one end of the spectrum. The other end of the spectrum is maybe you have more mature product that's kind of just doing feature development some feature additions every year. That can be done by a partner as well. I think the The biggest thing that has changed, it goes back a little bit to where you went on automation, the collaboration tools, the way that you can work with a third party have become so much better that the, the friction to working with a partner is way less than it was even five years ago. The partners that we use, we communicate with them via Slack. It's really easy. It's as if they're sitting next to us in an IBM office because it's just you know a couple keystrokes away. I think that's one of the biggest, I'd say accelerators of that as a trend is just the collaboration, the communication overhead, if you will. The overhead's gone way down. So it's just become a lot easier to do.
0: So if we take that trend that you just mentioned about just everyone getting closer and it being easier to work with partners and advancing the technology, if we extend that out like another decade, what sort of
1: visions do you have about the future? So I'll give you two slightly opposing views. I'm not, uh, I'm not a big believer in this idea that we're all going to work in our homes the rest of our lives. We're all going to move out to the country, leave cities. I don't believe that's going to happen. I think people have kind of overreacted in the short term on that because I think humans fundamentally want to interact with other humans. So I think we're going to still have a very strong office culture It's an important part of how we'll build products, that type of thing. That said, when it comes to something like, hey, we're going to go into this new area, we don't have to choose a partner based on physically where they are because we've all become pretty good at working digitally. So we can go hire the best person in the world, regardless of where they are, pretty quickly to go do something. So I think there's a chance that you'll start to see even more of kind of the outsourced type work that you're describing, but probably in really small sprints. It's like everything doesn't need to be a one or two year project. Like it could be, I need help for three weeks or I need help for six weeks, or maybe I need something for five days. Maybe I need a design expert to really do a critical design review and that's five days. So I think because we're more comfortable with that kind of work, which is certainly what we've all been forced to do in the last year, I think that becomes much more accessible but again i say it's an opposing view because i think the norm is actually going to be more of a return to people working together physically but it's opened up this opportunity to find the best skill anywhere in the world
0: yeah it's shaking everything up and now it's it was like a culture shift now it's even more acceptable than ever to work remote
1: yeah, I think before it was like you would you would assume you were getting lesser quality or it's not going to be as good if I do it that way. I don't think anybody thinks that way anymore because it's well, it's become the norm for the better part of the last year. Yeah, and the productivity.
0: I've, I've read so many different articles people put out, but one of the themes tends to be that productivity is doing better with people managing their time. I don't know how you would exactly prove that or quantify it but have you been hearing that at all or no
1: i think it really it depends a lot on the company and the situation so i I live in a town in connecticut where probably 70 percent of the people that go to work commute into or used to commute into manhattan every day that's like two hours each way so these people all got back four hours per day of their life it's hard for me to think that they're not a little more productive because that is exhausting when you do that over a long period of time.
0: You're not you're not joking, by the way, just so I understand, people really do this. This isn't like an exact they
1: drive they go commute four hours. Oh, absolutely. Because by oh, the okay. time you think about it, door I mean the train itself is like an hour and ten minutes, but by the time you, you know, the 20 minutes before the train and you got to get there before the train and then getting through the city on the other side, yeah, it's easily two hours. Wow. Um I find it hard to believe that they're not more productive saving that four hours per day. And plus you don't have to get up at 4 30 AM and go get on a train. I'm sure they're more productive. I think for people that were spending a lot of time on airplanes, traveling, they've probably gotten a little bit out of this. That said, I think I've also really, I travel a lot. Some of that downtime was helpful for, for thinking versus just doing. (laughs) And so I think it's a little bit different for everybody, but I, I certainly think for people that faced huge commutes, this has shown probably a better way. Yeah. How is your team, like personally, your team, how have they responded to the transition? It goes in waves, and I think it's like that for every team. You know, at first there was a novelty aspect to it. I mean, and for IBM at least, we've always worked with teams across the world around the country so being on a video call was nothing new back in march when this started but what was new was never seeing each other face to face so at first there's a level of novelty to it for those of us that traveled a lot which is many of us suddenly we were having dinner with our families every day which was great getting to see your kids every day which was great and then you get six months into it and you're like, wow, I've been going to the same desk every day. That doesn't feel as good. Like I liked the variety a little bit. This is what I've heard from people. And so it kind of goes in waves. Productivity I think has been exceptional to answer that question. But I do believe people really want to get back to some level of interaction in the office. I think the thing you miss in a video conference world is the 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 5 minute casual discussion before the meeting or the 5 minutes after or the passing in the hall it just everything has become so much more transactional <laughs> here's the meeting what are we here to do what are we accomplishing and missing those in between moments a lot gets lost actually
0: yeah creating a culture digitally takes a lot of effort Um, one of the things that stood out to me, like I I highlighted a couple things from that management article I keep mentioning, which I'll definitely post the link in the notes. But one of the things that really stood out to me is you had said something along the lines of, you need an intentional strategy to motivate your team. If you don't have one, then you're not gonna have a motivated team. And I was like, yes, that's amazing and true. But then I was like, where's the example? What does that look
1: like? I think it's different for everybody because it's, you can't motivate people in an inauthentic way. So it is about what is your style? How, how are you going to do that? I mean, to some extent, like that's part of my approach is sharing ideas like that. I do think people get encouraged and get motivated by, hey, you know, these are some good ideas. I can probably learn something by doing this. So, so that's one way to do it. I'd use Slack a lot, like I do monthly, we call ask me anything so anybody in the company can come on and ask a question about any topic and and i do get some crazy some crazy (laughs) topics from you know what's your favorite food to um you know what are your children's names to you know business things but just that kind of transparency and people didn't realize, hey, this is actually like, this is a real human. This is a normal person. It is actually motivating in that respect. So there's lots of different tactics. I study a lot of coaches. I think sports coaches are the best at motivating because it basically determines their ability to, to do their job. You can learn a lot of techniques by, by studying people like that.
0: Who are some of your... Do you have a
1: favorite coach, sports coach that you studied? It's hard not to admire... Nick Saban, and I don't like Alabama at all because I'm a, I'm a Gator and a, a Commodore, but the fact that he's been able to win for so long while having a rotating staff of assistant coaches means he's just built a great system. And when you hear him talk, he's always focused on really just discipline. Are you committed to a process of success, each individual and everybody as a team? And the way he just kind of builds different systems to enforce that, I think is really admirable. So it's clearly done a good job and it's clearly worked. Discipline
0: is massively important. When did you realize this, like in life?
1: I think my mom is probably the most disciplined regimented person that I've ever known. So I probably learned it about age four. So just contagious behavior. Yeah, always a plan, always written down. Always an action item. Always a next step. So, it um, it was ingrained in me from a from a very early age and never went away. That's great. What a great mom, right? Absolutely, tremendous. Lots of
0: thanks to her. Yeah. <laughs> One of the compliments I have about your writing, something I noticed that that really stood out to me, was when you you said this a couple times, but you're talking about like assuming nothing will happen unless you incite it to happen. So basically, a bunch of places where I would usually see people use the word create or make, uh, you were using different words like incite, and there was another one too. And I noticed this like subtle difference on how I pick up on the words. I don't know if it's true if you open up a dictionary or, or whatnot. But Some of the other words, when I hear create and make, it seems like I would own that task. Like, but when I hear when I hear "insight," it seems like I would cause that to happen. It's a it's a small, subtle thing. I don't know if that was intentional, but it made a big it stood out to me as a reader.
1: I I have a fundamental belief that everybody has greatness inside of them. Many people don't really know how to make it come out. And so I use a word like inciting it because sometimes just asking a question will prompt somebody to think, Hey, I can go do that. Or, you know, some minor amount of encouragement. Hey, you mentioned this thing about you were considering the other day, like, why don't you just go do that? So you can, you can drag things out of people just by a little bit of encouragement, uh, the right question at the right time. Some people need a little bit of a push, but I'm always, and I shouldn't be surprised anymore. I'm always surprised. People can find another another level, another gear, but sometimes they just need something to, to tweak them a little bit.
0: You you had this line that was, uh, know your one indelible, which I Googled the word, so I understand now. the know your one indelible must win battle and then put your best person in charge of it. And you see, so you, you didn't say like, and focus on it and go make sure it happens. You just like at the, like, put your best person in charge.
1: So then what do you, you're just doing the other things in the article, which is a lot, right? So this was written with the idea of, look, general management, general management and that term in IBM is really a CEO. Cause these are people that run multi-billion dollar businesses. And so they can't do everything. And the phrase I say to my team sometimes is say one of the biggest curses of being in a a great company like IBM is, is we can do anything, but we can't do everything. And so you've got to make really intentional decisions. And so I think the, the leaders that I see struggle are the ones that walk into the office every day and have a list of 60 action items and because they're disciplined and because they're attentive, they're going to do all 60. But that really doesn't scale. Because so you've done 60 small things. That's different than knowing the most important thing is that we take that hill this year and then you, you know, turn to the right and you say, you know, Mary, your job is to go take that hill. You're a great leader. You know how to do this. Everything that you've been working on has prepared you for this. You go do that. You tell me what I need to do to help you, it just changed, you know, then you're scaling because you know, you can trust her and she's going to go do that. It's going to make the whole team better. And then you as the leader can focus on the other things that you need to do. It doesn't mean that you won't help. It doesn't mean that you won't stay on top of it, but you will fail as a leader. If you believe you have to do everything important person, you have to personally do everything that's important. Yes. Absolutely. I mean,
0: you kind of learn that really fast as an entrepreneur, <laughs> right? Right. Like it's tough. Have you ever started? Well, I guess you've been at IBM, but you've started businesses or been a part of starting businesses. I mean, you sound very entrepreneurial. Like when I talk to
1: you, I study that a lot. So I, I know nothing in, um, in the real world. So I admire people like, like yourself that have done that. Cause I think it, it develops a level of scrappiness and tenaciousness that sometimes is missing from people that have kind of only lived in the, the corporate world, if you will. So I couldn't possibly say I've been in your shoes. It's
0: like I heard Elon Musk describe it once as staring into the abyss and eating glass. And I was like, yeah, that's like, that's close. Like I started the business. This isn't my first business, but I started it like right when I was having my first kid, like two months before she was born and I had a new wife kid and I just was like all right well here we go again let's let's do this hard thing uh right now I mean it doesn't really it's just hard it's like there's there's a there's only a certain level of hard. there's like maximum hard by the way so there's maximum hard and there's maximum pain and um you know you know what those are like and then it's just like okay it only gets that painful and it only gets that hard and then it's just up to you like how it's like working out too or fitness or anything very, very similar. It's like, how, how long are you going to spend in that hard space or how long are you willing to spend in that hard space? But I liked what you were talking about, about focus earlier and knowing that one thing, because that's something that's hard to teach because it's so context and situationally dependent to figure out what that hill is and to understand it. And so when things really clicked for me, when I real, I heard this phrase, simplify to multiply or and I just start. I think it was like a Tim Ferriss thing. And I was just like, what's the most important thing that has to be done, um, whether it's today or in the quarter or in the year. And then I heard Bezos right after that say that the things you're seeing this year are from four years ago. And he's like, I'm living five years into the future now because I can, But it, it, and so listening to how these people think about planning and then having the faith to do that are two separate things. <laughs> but but if you do it if you plan in advance and like I saw you had a rule on there like a minimum of three years but it is it is so important because I I made this mistakes like in your writing you say you know by changing direction and doing these things you kind of lie to yourself like oh new information got to change the path new information but what you what you did in your writing and your sort of checklist guide to to general management which you showed this very important fact that i learned in a very painful way um is that when you're doing those things and you think you're doing the right thing by changing you're jerking your team around like and it's like they're in a boat in a storm and you're just gonna batter them up and bruise them while you think you're doing like the best thing and it's a it's a
1: tough lesson to learn man it is and if the team is being you know Jerked around, changing directions like that, you're you're going nowhere except for maybe in circles. So you've got to have you've got to have commitment and clarity on a direction, which can't change every week. And then you've got to set your priorities to make sure that it's aligned in that direction. You're one of the setting priorities. I'll tell you, here's one of the one thing that is so simple in concept that I think is incredibly hard to do. Every Every Monday, write down on paper, what are the three most important things that you have to accomplish that week? I can't tell you how hard it is to actually do that because you actually sit down with a blank sheet of paper. You're like, well, that's important. You'll probably end up with a list of like 15 things. And you're like, well, that's not that important. Well, I, if I can do that now and knock it out in 10 minutes, is it really one of the three most important things? Like, Really thinking about what are the three most important things that will have an impact and an outcome? It's actually not nearly as easy to do as it sounds oh i yes okay so we had this idea when
0: we after the podcast started to take off a little bit we ended up creating a leadership company where we did leader bits with these leadership challenges that we would do once a week and you would put them out there and people would join and they'd pay for them and go on and what we realized is Like the point of all of that and the business model ended up changing to where we were just uh, leadership training for companies. Like they would pick a leadership program. They would do a 10 week, uh, 10 weeks of challenges because what would happen is we found it's the hardest thing in the world to just be consistent. So even if you're only doing like a 10 minute entry, right, a 10 minute entry, but you have to do it every single week, the probability of your failure, like exponentially increases. (laughs) The farther it goes, it just becomes hard to do. And it was fascinating. Like, I would interview and talk to these people, too, like some people who had done them longer than others to really understand, like, if the product or how it was working. And they're like, yeah, if you do it, it's beneficial. I'm like, okay, so I have a product that's like equivalent to working out. Like, if you work out, you will get the results, right? It's just a
1: lot of effort over a very long period of time. Yep. Look, I think it was the Warren Buffett quote that. You know the greatest invention of of mankind is compounding i think i butchered that quote but the general idea was trusting compounding which is just stick with it do a little bit every day like that is the superpower and you know it's like the uh like january 2nd when suddenly the workout room's packed again and then by january 15th it's kind of empty again like if people it's because people go too hard Like they show up on January 2nd and they just kill themselves. And like, that's not what it's about. Just do a little bit every day, do a little bit every week. The power of compounding is, can't be compared to.
0: So yeah, we call it leveraging the compounding nature of time over here. It's like one of our like things that we talk about a lot because like you said, it was something that uh, Warren Buffett says, but then it happens with how you spend your time. Like it's not just like a financial thing and also, while you're waiting for these results, while you're letting it compound, right? the mindset is important too, because if you're expecting results in two weeks, like, oh, I'm going to go to the gym, I'm going to lose 15 pounds. In two. But if you go into it with saying, this is going to take me five years, it's going to take me five years to get to where I want to be physically. And the way I'm going to start is by driving to the gym. And sitting in the parking lot for five minutes, but I have to, or <laughs> sitting in the parking lot and then waiting an hour and then I get bored of sitting in the parking lot and then I end up going in and walking just so I'm not sitting in the car and then I end up getting a trainer and then I and it's like a five year path and just execute consistently in that expectation. And that's, I think, one of the things touches back a little bit to like the career path. I think setting expectations with career paths is super important
1: too, because you don't want them to just like give up. Right. You got to have a ambitious goal. If you don't have any idea where you're going, then who knows where you'll end up, but then you do have to commit to consistent process, consistent discipline. What is it going to take to get better every day? Like those are the things that, that I think about. And I, I think as people think about the arc of their careers, there's probably there's probably three skills that I would say are the most magical skills for a person to have. And it's not it's not hard to describe, but it's hard to do. One is you got to be a great communicator, whether it's, you know, how you write, how you talk to others in a meeting, how you share your ideas, whatever it may be, presenting you gotta be a great communicator. That's a magical skill. You gotta be able to work with others, which is not I mean, the irony is we go we go through school and it's a penalty, it's called cheating to work with others in school, right? So then you get in the workforce and suddenly you're you know, the magical skill is can you actually work with others? I think that's the second one. Third one actually for me is reading. I know not everybody likes reading, but there's other ways. To, well, first of all, read stuff that you like, then you'll like it, and then you'll, you'll see where it takes you. But if you don't want to read, listen to podcasts or something else. But reading is a magical skill because I told people this over and over again if you just go, you've got a meeting on a topic or a presentation, if you just go read the three best books ever written on that topic, you're going to be smarter than 90% of the people in the room because they probably didn't take the time to do that. So, Look, if you're a great communicator, you're great working with others, you spend a lot of time reading, you're pretty much unstoppable. Okay. So I want to, I want to, first of all,
0: yes, I love that. And when you were talking about the compounding time, right. And like, let's say you're trying to work on these, becoming a great communicator or working with others and reading and just putting that 30 minute chunk in your schedule and just letting it, become part of your identity. This is someone who I am, I'm someone who invests time in my communication skills or reading. And then let's say so you do all of that, right? And you do that for a year or two, and you notice like a drastic difference in the improvement in these three areas, and maybe even your coworkers and leaders know people around you, okay, then you go off to do some big goal, and you apply the same principles, right? And You get the big goal. You get a goal that you thought would take you 20 years. You get it in about two, maybe three years, right? Then... You get kind of like depressed because <laughs> here i'm sharing this is like a personal thing it came out differently but i'll i'll share the details if you want but so i i accomplished this thing i thought would take me 20 years uh, this podcast because like it was my dream to talk to like the greatest technology leaders in the world building the coolest stuff and that was this thing i planned and set out to take 20 years and then it's, it happened within like two or three years and And I, the weirdest thing happened. I got kind of depressed. And then I realized that like, I can do anything if I, if I work hard at it and apply these principles, like, and I couldn't figure out like what to do, you know, like what to do with this new, you called it a superpower uh, earlier. Like, what do you do with this superpower? And then, uh, so I was at, so I'm curious because I, I was asking around and I've, I figured it out for the time being because this happened to me about six months ago, eight months ago. But um, I'm curious, when, do you see this happen in some of your high performing executives? Like, do you see them hit these goals, apply these principles and then just kind of get lost for a minute? I definitely have.
1: We, we watched the movie, the, Pixar, the new Pixar movie, Soul, with my wife and kids. I don't know if you've seen it. Yeah, we just saw it like a couple of weeks ago or when it came out. <laughs> Pixar has gone from talking toys to, to movies that make adults like ponder their whole life. But <laughs> the, uh, the thing that stuck with me was, you know, the guy wants to play jazz, wants to play with stars, and then he finally gets to do it. And then he walks off the stage and he's like, is that it? And she's like, yeah, now we, now we go to the next city. And it was like the thing he'd been, he thought was going to be amazing. He realized it was just another step. And I think that's that's kind of the whole game, right? Which is you have to have goals, but then you've also got to be able to find what is that next level. The thing I, the thing that's the most painful for me, but I also like is when you kind of think you have it going and you think you're doing the right things, then you meet somebody and you're like, wow, that person's like 10 X in that area to me, because then it completely changes what you thought the bar was. And so I think that look, there's always another level. So when I see people that kind of hit that wall that you're describing, you just gotta coax them to go keep you know, keep their eyes open, stay curious, they'll they'll realize that there's another level.
0: Yeah. And then just figuring out like what that next big goal is. And so what I real what I, I took from that experience was as I'm approaching the the goal, the best I can figure it out. If I'm getting there, uh, figure out what the next move is before the accomplishment, like actually the realization of the accomplishment actually takes place. That way I can just go right to that next one. But luckily I'm pretty good about like, if I feel a certain way, how to flip it around pretty quickly. So it doesn't like last for like weeks or anything like that. It's just like, Oh, I feel kind of off now. I've got to go talk to a bunch of people and figure out what to do. But, um, really, the act of the growth and doing something big and amazing with a group of people and 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 creating that change and being useful to the world and helping others like the, all of that stuff is the the best parts of it right the, achieving the end result is like it's something that's necessary you have to have that flag that you're going after or that hill you're going to take but the best part is the entire experience along the way
1: the thing that changed my whole perspective on leadership was it was something that clay christensen wrote in i think the book was called how will you measure your life or something like that and he's got this paragraph where he he talked about a manager that was interacting with employee something didn't go right so they kind of berated the person he said I, he couldn't stop thinking about how she then drove home and she was probably depressed and she was probably down which means She probably wasn't supportive of her kids. And it was just kind of illustrating that the impact that you can have on somebody's life at work can completely change their kids' lives, potentially. And it kind of made me think, like there has to be more than just building a great business. Like if, and I I kind of decided at that point, part of my job is gonna be, can I have a positive impact on others? as opposed to just can we build a great business. Look, we want to build a great business. It's our job to build a great business, but you can do that and also have a positive impact on people's lives. And when I, when I read that, and I'm not describing it as well as it was written, but it really kind of struck me as, yeah, that's actually what the real, that, that's what the real focus should be. And so I try to keep that in mind all the time. That's,
0: I love that because it's like ample, so you as a leader, So people who are listening to leading teams, the way that they interact with their direct reports has an amplifying effect across their families and their kids and everything in life.
1: Right. And all they're going to remember about you is how did you how did you make them feel Mm. in the time that they were working with you? That's all they'll remember. That is so true. The first time I heard that somebody
0: says people don't remember what you say. They remember how you made them feel. And I just, I instantly, some things you just know in your core of yourself are are true because you can think back and you're like, you remember all these conversations you had, but you don't remember the words of the conversation. You just kind of remember how they made you feel and what the outcome was.
1: You're right. And I think I tend to be very direct communicator. And so I know sometimes when I start working with people I haven't worked with before, they're kind of maybe taken aback, but. I think, I, I believe they learn over time that it comes from a good place, which is, look, I want you to be great because if you're great, then we're gonna be great. And so I think being a direct communicator helps with that, but it also kind of keeps me, kind of the story I shared, keeps me in check because I do realize that ultimately what I say is gonna have an impact on what people do when they leave the office or when they when they turn off Zoom. So that's a pretty big responsibility, and I look—we all have that responsibility, regardless of what our our job is.
0: Yeah, and regardless of whether we realize it's our responsibility or not, it's still there. So some people will hear this and be like, "Whoa, yeah." Uh, fearlessness. A couple more things. Do you have Do you have five more minutes? Or yeah, we, okay. People think leaders are fearless, right? That's something I hear all the time. People will say that to me. They're like, "I don't know how you do it." And they think that I'm like absent the fear and I'm most definitely not like I know the feeling of fear. Uh, What are your thoughts on that?
1: Everybody's human. I think people, they read, they see people on TV or they read about people in a newspaper and they think they're superhuman. They're not. Everybody has the same feelings. I forget what the line was. It's about courage, which is, you know, having courage is not, it's not being it's not that you're not scared it's that you're scared but then you keep going forward and look everybody's human so i think everybody has the same same feelings i do think teams will take on the the psychology of the leader and so it is the job of the leader if something looks really hard it's your job to act like it's a piece of cake because if you say this is impossible then the team's going to take on that view that it's impossible. So you do have to act like it's a piece of cake, even if it's not, that doesn't mean you don't acknowledge, Hey, here's where it can be difficult. Here are the things we're gonna have to get over. But a leader has to convey confidence without a doubt. It kind of goes back to the, you know, the coaching analogy. Nobody ever won a game by the coach saying, we're probably going to lose. Here's all the reasons we're going to (laughs) lose. We're not as good as them. You, You have to project confidence but that doesn't mean that you don't have the same feelings anybody else does but your job as a leader is to convey confidence and to lay out you know the reasons why you're confident a reason for optimism i think that's pretty critical
0: yeah it's not it's not fake confidence because if you have less experience or no experience i could see someone doing that but i'm slow to confidence like i happen to know this about myself it takes me a long time to build confidence but once i have it like I'm slower than the other kids, but once I get it, like it's there, like it's just a core trait in the area that, that I've achieved the confidence. And, and so, you know, having my first area of mastery and then a second then I learned how long it takes to achieve that for myself. And then a second one and a third one, basically getting to the point where you have enough experience mixed with, you know, reading those books and understanding what do the experts argue about at the top? Because nobody agrees across anything. So, um, but that, that confidence of doing difficult things, like if you're used to doing difficult things, if you understand that, you know, you're always kind of fearful, but you push through it and it works sometimes and it doesn't work the other, but the, it, you have to try and for it to work, you have to go in believing that it'll work. Like that is so important. Like you have to go in believing that it's going to work and, uh, have the experience that you're going to have that dip that you're going to
1: have to push through. And I think, look, when things go wrong, how you react as the leader is going to determine how the team acts, right? If you turn that into, well, you know, that was horrible. Not sure what we're going to do. You panic, you start ranting and raving, then you're not, then you're setting the wrong tone. And so again, the most important thing you can do is to, convey confidence, and acknowledge reality. You got you to do both, actually.
0: Yes. Man, I could talk to you all day. And I'm, I subscribed today, by the way, to your, uh, it's a newsletter. It's called The Mentor. Can you tell me what that's about and how, you, how people can subscribe?
1: Sure. So this may not be the answer you're looking for, but anytime I see new technology or tools, I'm always kind of curious and I want to try them. So it was about this time last year I saw that this company Substack that I'd never heard of raised, I think 30 or $40 million. And it was like newsletters. I was like, how did somebody, I was like, how did somebody raise $30 million for newsletters? I don't even know what that means. So I went on to Substack just to figure out what it means. And so I set this up and I called it the mentor and I said, I'm going to share each month. I'll share the three best things I've read about careers building your skills, personal development, a lot of the topics we talked about. And so I started that last January. So every month email comes out, it's pretty short, it's like half a page. And here's the three best things I read somewhere on, on that. And I've gotten a lot of positive feedback on it. So a lot of people have subscribed, which has been great. I've gotten pointers, I've gotten suggestions. So I've learned a lot in the process, learned how to use Substack, so that's been fun. So it's been great. So I appreciate you doing that.
0: Awesome. Thank you, Rob. Keep being awesome, my friend. We'll talk soon.
1: All right, guys. Take care. Have a great week. See you.
0: Thank you so much for listening. And if you found this episode useful, please share it with a friend or a colleague who you think would get value from it. And if you have topics that you'd like to hear discussed on the podcast, either add me on LinkedIn or send me an email, joel at moderncto.io. Every time I get an email or LinkedIn message, it absolutely makes my day and inspires me to keep going.